Praise the Lord indeed. Thank you, choir. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the things that you have done. We give you the glory that is all yours, Father. God, we just want to uh, reflect back to you what you are pouring out on us. And so, God, we just ask that you would be honored by our praise, Lord, that our hearts would be genuine before you, that our minds would be thoughtful of you, God, and we would come before you in spirit and in truth, just laying our hearts and our lives out before you, saying we are all yours. And so, God, uh, may you be glorified. May you be exalted. May you be magnified. May you be just just the thing that we are we are totally devoted and submitted to, the, the person, rather, that we are totally uh, devoted and surrendered to, God. We love you, God. We thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for the opportunity to get together uh, on a weekly basis and, and just pour out our hearts uh, to you, God, and then and then have our hearts poured into by you. And so, so God, we just we just love you and uh, ask that you would use this time for that purpose, God. As we as we discuss worship, Lord, I pray that that our hearts would be in tune to you, Father, uh, <coughs> and God, that we would just be uh, brimming, Lord, just just ready, God, and and eager, God, to to give you what you deserve, and, and that's all of our worship. You are completely worthy. And so, Father, use this time for your glory. May you be exalted in this place, uh, continue to be exalted uh, in this place this morning. God, speak through me as I stand upon the authority of your word, but behind the cross again, so you may receive all the glory. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Go ahead and open up God's word to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And tonight, this morning's message, rather, is called The Heart of Worship. <clears throat> the heart of worship. And, and as you're turning there, <clears throat> appropriately, I want to share a story with you about worship, okay? And uh, just tell you about one of the best worship services that I have ever been to. Just a worship service that, that I, can, I can fondly remember. And uh, it, I, was, I was out of place, and, and there were literally thousands of people there or thousands of people were arriving and going to be there and the anticipation uh, was really really high and, and people were coming from all over the place okay they were just coming from all over the region to this worship service and and you know that a worship service or, or anything is going to be really really good when you have the people like waiting at the door they're waiting for the doors to be open and when the doors open they're the first ones in and they rush in as fast as they can so that they can get the best seats available right and so so this this was how happening here. Uh, I finally uh, get to my seat and, and the, they have the music on the speakers and, and it, it's blaring and you just kind of look look around and people are kind of dance. Some are dancing, some are sitting, some are chilling, some are talking, some are just kind of hanging out. But then the band comes. Then the, the band comes. And once the band comes, the whole place goes into a frenzy. I mean, it is just becomes this really, really powerful thing. They play that first song and the, everybody seems to be really, really in tune. And, and and it's just a picture of freedom. I mean, I just remember there's, there's this just picture of freedom. Some people are standing up. Some people are sitting down. Some people have their hands raised. Some people are hollering. Some people are just, are just taking it all in. It, it, it's just different people were doing different things, and it was okay with everybody. It was just a freedom in what they were doing. And then, and then every once in a while when, when the speaker would speak, the people were really hanging on the words of the speaker and, and celebrating the good news that was being proclaimed. It was a powerful powerful night and it was worship the only problem was it wasn't worship of god it wasn't worship of god at all we were worshiping a man-made thing 
It was the most natural thing in the world for us to do. There was a mixture of Christians and non-Christians in this venue, and there were a mixture of blacks and whites and Hispanics and Latinos and whatever else you want to mix in there. And despite all of our difference, there was a camaraderie because we had we were united, rather, by a single goal, and that was to cheer on our team. That was the goal. It was to cheer on our team, and we were at a man-made worship service. Now, I ask you, is this a bad thing? What I, the picture I just described to you, is this a bad thing? Well, first off, I'd like to say it can be. <laughs> it certainly can be. We as sinners have taken some really good things and made them sinful. Okay, We have taken some really great blessings of the Lord and turned them to sinful. But in and of itself, cheering for a team at a ball game is fine. In fact, it is a reflection of who we are created to be. It is a reflection of, of how God designed us. By God's design, we are all worshipers. We're not going to go into that. That's Romans chapter 1. I encourage you to read it. But by God's design, we have all been created with this innate uh, desire to worship. So the problem comes when we worship wrongly. When we in any way place the smaller and the eternally insignificant things above the, the, the greater and eternally significant one of God. And what we do is when we do that in any way, in any way, shape, or form, when we do that, this is called idolatry. And one definition of idolatry that I saw is our fundamental failure to rejoice in what we should rejoice in. And this is so incredibly important to God that that when he gives his law to us, he he talks about it in the first first two commandments. In the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments deal directly with this. First, number one, he says, you shall have no other gods before me, okay? So he's kind of setting it up right there. I'm number one, okay? I'm number one. You shall have no other gods before me. He gets to number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. <clears throat> so Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that God gave these commandments first because they are the foundation for all the other commandments. So he says, if we keep the first, then we'll keep all the others. But if we break any of the other commandments, it's because we've already broken the first one. So he, so he comes to this conclusion, every, under every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. And the idea is that we have placed something ahead of God. And so what we're going to talk about this morning, and and we kind of zip through that real fast, but what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to concentrate on making sure that our worship is in the right place. We have to concentrate to make sure that our worship is in the right place. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on Jesus-centered worship. All right? We're going to look at the barriers to our worship. We're going to look at God's plan for how we worship. And then we'll concentrate on who we worship. And we'll do it all by exploring this story in John chapter 4 of the woman at the well. So, again, I hope you have your scriptures open. John chapter 4, starting in, <coughs> excuse me, verse 4. says, Now, he had, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of, uh, of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So let's, let's stop right there for right now. So Jesus is coming to Samaria. We've, we've talked about this a lot. He, most of the time Jews went around. But, but he is coming to Samaria and he meets this woman and he says, Listen, can you get me a drink of water? Now, what he does is such a big social taboo that, <clears throat> that it draws a unique conversation. A, a, a kind of different conversation is drawn out of it. And she says, wait a second, you realize you can't really do this, right? <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be talking to me. We're not really supposed to be associating with yourself and because, or with me. And because uh, of this unique conversation that they end up uh, having... Uh, uh, basically, she gets to this point where she gets frustrated with him. She says, do you think you're greater than our father Jacob? Are you kidding me? Who do you think that you are? That, you, that, that you, your, your water is better than this water? I, what are you talking about, man? And so she just gets frustrated with this comment that Jesus makes. And, and, and I just want to point out here, this isn't in my notes, but... but when we look at Jesus' commands very seriously, sometimes we get pretty frustrated with him. <laughs> sometimes we get a little aggravated with Jesus because as we like to say in the Baptist church, he steps on our toes. But then Jesus gives her the truth that she needs. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Sometimes he'll step on our toes, but that's in order to open up the door so that he can share a truth with us, okay? And he gives her the truth that she needs. And he says, this well does not satisfy this well does not satisfy, and you are going to the wrong well. Listen, you'll drink, and you'll enjoy yourself, and it'll be great, but it's going to go away, and you're going to come back here tomorrow, and you're going to have the same <coughs> issue, and you're going to constantly be going for refills. And here's what I want us to hear this morning as we, as we begin, as we look at barriers to our worship. The first thing I want you to see, this rock-solid truth, that is whatever well we dip our buckets in to find satisfaction, if it is not Jesus Christ, it will always leave us dry and longing for more. If we dip, our, if we dip the bucket of our life in any well other than Jesus Christ, we will always come up dry. It may satisfy for a moment. Oh, it'll taste real good in the moment. But it will always come up dry. And we'll have to go back again, 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 and again. And so what we're going to look at is three primary wells, three primary bad wells, uh, or wrong wells, rather, that, <clears throat> that we try to satisfy ourselves with. The first is the well of money and comfort. Now, we've, we've talked about this, and we could spend a lot of our time uh, right here, but, but here's the message. Money and comfort don't last, and, and they don't bring deep heart satisfaction. Uh, many of you are probably familiar with Ricky Williams. Ricky Williams is the running back, used to play at the University of Texas. When he graduated from the University of Texas, uh, he had the most career rushing yards of any running back in, in college football history. He went on to be drafted by the New Orleans Saints, which is an incredible story because they, they moved up in the draft in order to get Ricky Williams and gave away all of their other draft picks just to get him. And so this guy's career, he was going to be the next thing. He was the future of running backs. He was just an absolute monster. It was going to be great. 
And I saw an interview with him this week because he's starting to college at, or, excuse me, coach at a small Christian college in Texas. And, uh, and, he, and I saw that he was given this interview, and, and basically he said, this is, when I got drafted, I thought when I had all the money and I had all the fame that everybody would understand me. And he said, what, what I found out, it was just the opposite. It magnified it and made everything so much worse in my life. And this is just a picture of someone dipping his bucket in the wrong well. See, for us... What we desire, what we have, is we have this urge for new stuff. We have this urge for better stuff, the next best thing, or the new toy. We want that grill, or we want that car, or we want this, this uh, I don't know, whatever you want. That thing in your life that you're kind of like, all right, I can't wait till Christmas, so I have an excuse to put myself in debt in order to get this thing. You know, I, I just want to, to, to get this thing. But we all know that it doesn't last. Ultimately, it doesn't even really make you feel good after the day or two after you get it. And, and pretty soon, you know what? The next catalog comes out. And so you have the next best thing and the next new toy. Have you ever, I say have you ever, of course you have. But when we go to garage sales, what do we see? We see all of yesterday's next best things and new toys, don't we? That's exactly what we see at garage sales. It doesn't last. And so I didn't want to spend a lot of time there uh, because, because I know we've been there a whole lot in the past. And so, but I, I do want to caution you there that if you're dipping your bucket in that well of, of financial gain, if you're dipping your bucket in that well of, of money bringing you comfort, that there's going to be some kind of comfort that comes from it, it's not going to last. It's going to fade. The second one, and I think uh, probably uh, of the three this one will spend the most time on, is the well of relationships. The well of relationships. Now, uh, as, as a youth minister for nine years, this one was very, very dear to my heart. This one was very, very close uh, to my heart. Because in youth ministry, I came across this on a very regular basis. And that is, I would have students who would never go any period of time without dating somebody. They were always, always, always dating somebody. They always had a boyfriend. They always had a girlfriend. And what I found over time is that is, that is where they found their identity. That is where they found their self-worth. It wasn't even so much in the boy or it wasn't so much in the girl. It was in the fact that they were with somebody. But without fail, every single one of those relationships ended with a breakup. So I want to specifically, I, I know we don't have a ton of younger kids in, in, in here this morning, but I want to specifically talk to you. If you're a young adult, uh, if you're a teenager, uh, I, I specifically want to talk to you uh, right now. Girls, no guy can satisfy your heart. No guy can satisfy your heart. He may be cute. Oh, boy, he may be cute. <laughs> he may be romantic. He may be a charmer. He may be athletic. He may be all the things that you think that you want in a guy. He may be the guy that gives you all the attention that you really, really crave. And, and he may give you a gift every time you see him. Oh, he's so great. Every time I see him, he brings me a roses or he brings me a card or he brings me some, uh, some food or something like that. He's just absolutely wonderful. But do you know what's going to happen after a while, girls? You're going to start wondering. You're going to start thinking to yourself. And you're going to say... Uh, I need a little space, you know. <laughs> you're around me a whole lot, and so I just need a little space. And you're going to start saying, this is kind of superficial, don't you think? Why do you get me a present every time that we're together? This is a little superficial. Listen, 
If, if the guy of your dreams comes into your life and devotes all of himself to you, it's not going to fill the void in your heart. It's not going to work. Guys, listen. No girl can ever satisfy your heart. Now, this one was a little easier for me to make, this, uh, this list of things that a girl could do. But guys, we're, we're kind of prideful as a lot. And so, so we want a good-looking girl that we can kind of show off. And I know that's chauvinistic and all that kind of stuff, but it's truth. So, so we want, we want that, that looker. And, and, and let's just imagine that this looker says, you know what, I love to massage feet. And so she is constantly doing foot massages, and she says, you know what else I love? I love to grill steak. And so she says, I'm going to massage your feet. I'm going to grill you, uh, grill you steak. And you know what? You don't really have to hang out with me all that much. You can go hang out with your boys. We'll just catch up every once in a while. So you're like, cha-ching, right? You know, I have found the woman of my dreams. Well, even if such a woman existed... There would come a time where you said, would you please massage my shoulders? <laughs> there would come a time where you said, I'd rather have some fish. There would come a time where you wonder why, do, why doesn't she care if I spend time with her? <laughs> There's going to be a time where these things happen because no girl can fill the void in your life. Now, I throw this on a teenage level, but I want to I tell you that this is an adult application. This is a very adult application. Listen, no marriage partner, no person in life can complete you. Makes me think of that movie, Jerry Maguire. Uh, probably m many of you have seen Jerry Maguire, but basically, without going through all the details, it's a relationship that has all kinds of issues and stuff like that. And at the very end of the movie, they are in a home together, and it's like a girls' night book club or whatever, and, and, and they're like bashing Jerry Maguire. They're bashing him of what kind of, what kind of a guy he's been to this one girl. And he knocks on the door, and he comes in, and he gives his whole speech, and he says, you complete me. And she says, you had me at hello. And I say, blah, that, that is a lie. That, that is, that's just false. There's no, there's no truth in that. Even the best relationships, even the ones that last and are rooted deeply in love, don't fully satisfy the cravings of our heart. Because we were not intended, we were not created with a void that could be filled by a man or a woman. We were created with a void that can only be filled by a Savior. Relationships do not meet the deepest needs of our heart. The third well is the well of success and respect. This comes from a book called The Creature of the Word. It says, we want approval. We want acceptance. We want other people to look at us and be impressed by what they see. We want to be pointed to as the example. We want to be shown respect. We feel like we are entitled to it. We love this well. We love this well. This well doesn't satisfy either. This well doesn't satisfy either. See, we, we generally speaking, we look for affirmation. We want people to like us, right? We look for affirmation. We look for acceptance. And we look for approval. But the problem is, we look to people for these things who are also looking for themselves for the exact same things. And what they do is they will tear us down in order to get it for themselves, just like we would tear them down in order to get it for ourselves. We, we, we have set up this thing. It, it reminds me of... a. 
Stuart Smalley on Saturday Night Live. I don't know how many SNL fans we, we have in here, but but uh, but on Stuart Smalley was, it was just this this one skit that they would do, and he at the very end of every skit he would look into a mirror and 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 he would say, "I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it." people like me you know it was just like this self-motivating pep talk kind of thing that he was doing but scripture says we're not good enough we're not smart enough and the people we want to like us are the very ones who are going to try to take advantage of us that's what scripture teaches so here's the real question if we're looking for affirmation why do we ever look any further than the cross If we are looking for affirmation, if we are looking for acceptance, why do we ever look any further than the cross? Listen, Jesus knew very well who we are not, right? He knew what we couldn't do, our limitations. He knew our sin. He knew our struggles. He knew everything about who we are not, but he died out of love for us. Do we need more acceptance than that? Do we need more affirmation than that? Jesus knows the truth behind us. Jesus knows our motives. Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows that we are not good enough. Jesus says, I'm more than enough. I am more than enough. Let us stop running to wells that do not satisfy. Consider Solomon. Consider Solomon in the Old Testament. He had everything a man on earth could desire. He had money and he had fame. He had relationships and lots of them. He had success and he had respect. But he comes to the end of his life and what is the conclusion that he makes about himself in Ecclesiastes 1-2? Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He has everything. He has everything that our culture and our world says, go get. And he says, meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Then in contrast, we look at the story of Job. And Job also had a lot. Job also was a rich man, and he had everything that this world had to offer, and it was all taken from him. Yet in losing everything, he was able to find that God is enough. God is enough. We must drop our bucket in the living water that quenches eternally all of our deepest thirst. And Jesus tells us how. Jesus tells us how. That's the beautiful part of this passage. He just doesn't say, you know, this is it. All right, we're done. He says, all right, let me show you what God desires. This is the kind of worship God desires of you. This is how you're going to meet that need. When you worship, you do what you were created to do, and you do it the way God created you to do it. All right? So let's read verses 21 through 24. Can we get that up there, Mike? Uh, It says, Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on the... Or when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. How many of you have ever read a book that made you think while at the same time it pulled at your emotions? We probably, how many of you have ever read a book like that? Anybody? All right, we've, we've, most of us have probably read a book like that. I, I, when I think of that kind of dual reality right there, the book that comes to my mind is a little book called Heaven is for Real. All right? Heaven is for Real is about a little boy, and this little boy uh, is very, very sick, 
and this little boy uh, comes near to death, and he has a vision of heaven, and he has a vision of Jesus. And so as I'm reading this book, the cynical side of me and the skeptical side of me, as I read this book, I'm trying to be like, does this line up with Scripture? Does this line up with Scripture? And so I am very deeply thinking about this book. However, there is a part in the book where the boy is going back for surgery. And as they are wheeling the little boy back from surgery, he starts screaming out to his daddy, Daddy, no! No, Daddy, please don't let him take me! And I'm reading this book, and I'm like, Okay, Lord, <laughs> this is getting a little too intense for me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm just about crying. Little did I know Carson was about to go through the same thing. And so, so this was kind of a, a, a weird thing for me. Uh, but but I, at the same moment, I had deep thought while I was being very emotionally driven. And this happens in every part of our lives. This happens in our relationships. This happens in our work. This happens in our recreation even. How many times are we watching football on a Sunday and we become an armchair quarterback? We're thinking deeply about what should happen and how it should happen and what the coach is doing right and what the coach is doing wrong and all those kind of things. Yet every play pulls on our heartstrings. Every play moves our emotions in one way or another. We are, we are wired this way. Yet, for some reason, worship seems to be the only place where these two realities cannot coincide. For whatever reason, it seems like worship is the only place that we say that thinking and acting out of our emotions cannot work at the same time. But Scripture clearly says that God desires worship that is both spirit and truth. Christopher Coppernell uh, puts it in a much more uh, modern way of saying it. He says, with inflamed hearts and informed minds. Here's the idea. These things are not exclusive of each other. Rather, they build on each other. Spirit, worship of, that is filled with truth builds on worship that is filled with spirit, which builds on worship that is filled with truth, which builds on... It's, it's a circular relationship. So let's just start it with... We'll start it with truth. Listen, if we sing songs or teach messages that do not honestly reflect who God, is, who God is and what He's done for us through Jesus Christ and on the cross, no one benefits. No one benefits. If, we, if what we are singing and what we are preaching is not the truth of God's Word, no one benefits. God is not glorified and we are not edified. Isaiah 55.11 says, My word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. Empty, some of y'all may be more familiar with void. It will not return to me void, but I will, or but, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So this is God's promise to us. And we can claim the promises of God. We can cling to the promises of God. God's promise is this. If I say it, it's going to happen, okay? And so what we have is he says, my word doesn't come back empty. I promise you, it does not come back empty. If I say it, it's going to happen, all right? This is my word. I'm going to make sure that it absolutely happens, okay? But if we dilute the word of God. If we change the Word of God, if we lessen the Word of God in the way that we teach, in the way that we sing, in the way that we worship, if we manipulate the truth for the sake of rhyme, or we manipulate truth for the preacher's own purposes, then we dilute the Word of God and it will return void because it's not the Word of God. When we dilute it, it is no longer His Word. So if we want the power of God in our worship, then we need the truth of God in our message. Here's the reality. The truth of God 
leads to the Spirit of God worshiping through us. Listen, some of us are very, very intellectually driven. I'm not one of those people, I admit. But some of us are very, very intellectually driven and or, and or conservatively trained. And it seems to us that the only, the only proper way to do this is just to focus on truth, 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 truth. But what, let's take a look at the truth that we're looking at. Let's take a look at the truth that we're teaching on. Let's take a look at the truth that we are singing about. The love we are singing and we are teaching about the love of God for a lost people. We are singing and teaching about the mercy of God to redeem these people. We are teaching about the Son of God who died for these people. We are teaching about the power of God to rescue these people. We are teaching about the glory of God shining over these people forever. Do we not have something to celebrate, church? Do we not have something? If if God is this passionate about us, should we not be passionate about our God? Yes, that was right. Whoever said it, that was right. Yes, we ought to be passionate. Yes, we ought to celebrate. And so what the truth of God does, the truth of God lights the flame of our soul in order that we may worship spiritually, that we may worship with inflamed hearts towards God. And when we are emotionally involved, it makes us want to know more about that which we deeply care. That is, the Spirit then leads us back to truth. Truth leads to Spirit. Spirit leads back to truth. And the process continues. Matt Chandler puts it like this. Understanding God's nature in a deep way should lead to an emotional response that creates an even deeper hunger to meditate on Him all the more. The mind and the heart feed each other. Mind to heart and then heart to mind. And this is for all. This is for God's people. This is to be done in an individual manner. This is to be done in your place of worship by yourself. That you were to seek the Lord through His Word and meditate on His Word. That you were to sing praises to the Lord. That you were to come before the Lord with prayer. Okay, this is, this is the way that we approach God individually. But as we approach God individually in this sort of worship, then we can come together in a powerful way and do it as a body. We don't have to do it as individual members. We can do it as a body. And we respond to the truth of God with joy and with praise. And so much so, I love this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right at the end of the chapter, it teaches us that, (coughs) excuse me, it teaches us that our worship ought to be so powerful that when lost people come into this service, they end leaving, I, I mean, they leave worshiping God. Think about that. Think about that. Think about this. Someone who does not know Jesus. Someone who is not filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Someone who is blatantly an enemy of God, according to Scripture, should come into this place as a lost person, see our worship service, and be moved to worship God Himself. Listen, church, we must worship God in spirit and truth. We must worship God in spirit and truth. We get to our last part here in verses 25 and 26. Says the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. See, this is what the woman, Jesus has been talking to her, telling her everything that's wrong with her, telling her everything that's going on. And finally, she just kind of gives up, right? She just kind of throws her hands in the air and says, Listen, I realize you're smarter than me. I realize you, 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 you know what has happened in my life. I'm not really going to argue with you anymore. I'm just going to go to my default defense position. Uh, it'll all work itself out. 
okay? You know, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to tell us everything that happens, and it'll all work itself out. And then this is the same thing that we do today. This is the same thing that we do when we get in a conversation. We don't really know the answer. We're not sure how to, to, to get into it. You don't feel like dealing with it anymore. You don't feel like arguing. So you just say, ah, oh, it'll, all, it'll all work out. I mean, this is what I do with end-time stuff, right? Eschatology. Uh, I, I, I have to admit to you, I'm not quite smart enough to fully grasp it. I have, I have a lean to which way that, that I, I go towards end-time theology, but when it comes to premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism, I'm just kind of like, this is, this is pretty hard. So I, my default answer is I'm a panmillennialist. It'll all pan out in the end, right? And so that's, that's kind of that's how I go with it. But what Jesus does is he looks at her and he says, that's not going to work here, woman. That's not going to work here. That's, that's a cop-out answer. And that is not going to work. She says, listen, the Messiah will come and he'll explain everything. He says, stop. I am the Messiah. Stop. I am the Messiah. Everything that we just talked about all throughout John chapter 4, he says, I fulfill it all. I am the fulfillment of everything. Do you want comfort in your life? Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you want relationship in your life? John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you want success in your life? Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the deepest desires of our heart. And more than that, he is our object of worship. He is not just this thing that, that the, the desires that God has given us, not only does He fulfill those desires, but He says, worship me. Okay? It's not that I'm just this, this plug-in that, that you can fill this gap with, but more than that, I am the object, object of all worship. We worship Jesus because of who He is, and He is God. He is God. As you come to the Father, you come to the Son, and you come to the Spirit. God is one. Go back to the Shema. Go back to the Old Testament. And what is the, the Jewish statement of faith? Hero Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. It is one God. It is Jesus Christ. Okay? Three persons, I know, and we can get into Trinity and all that kind of stuff. But God is one. So we worship Him for who He is. We worship Him as God. But then we worship Him for what He has done. What He has done, He has become human. He has overcome every temptation that was thrown at Him, and He did it without sin. He was falsely accused. He was harshly mistreated. He died on a cross in our place. Then He rose from the grave in order that we may have eternal life. And right now, He's at the right hand of the Father, praying for us on our behalf. Worship is not, listen church, worship is not about what we can get out of it. Worship is about Jesus. Worship is about Jesus. Listen, I'm not saying we don't get blessed through it. I'm not saying we don't get blessed through it because Jesus is the giver of all good gifts. But it means that the blessing is not the end. It's not the goal for which we strive. It's not the purpose of our worship is the blessing that we receive out of it. Worship is to exalt the one who is worthy of all exaltation. And that's why we sing. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. One of my favorite songs, the chorus goes, It's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your 
worship is vital. This month we we begin tomorrow we get, begin going to people's homes and we begin praying month of prayer, praying for revival for our church. We begin doing this next, this month and what I want to encourage you is I want to encourage you to pray for our worship. I want to encourage you to begin as we as we meet tomorrow to begin by praying for our worship because worship is the function of the church that must precede all the other functions. It is the first and foremost. It is the first thing. It is what we were created to do. And when we submit Jesus, uh, or excuse me, submit our hearts to Jesus as our Lord, we will exalt Him as our Savior and King. So that's what we're going to pray for. Okay, let's let's spend this time. Let's pray right now. Lord, I love you, and God, uh, we seek you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you are exalted in this place. God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that, that the words that we just read this morning from Isaiah 55 would be so relevant, God, that your word would not return void. Lord, that we would, we would take what we have heard, that we would take the, the truth that Jesus has laid out for us, God, and that we would not hold back. Lord, it's not you that ever withholds from us for the sake of just withholding from us. God, it's us that, that pulls back from You. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that You would lift us up as we seek to worship You better. God, You would hold us up and help us to focus on You. Help us to see the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to picture the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to see the risen Jesus Christ, the Deliverer, the Lord, the Savior, the King, the Mighty One. You're everything. Help us to come to You, Lord, knowing these truths, but igniting our hearts in passion for You. God, we love You. Lord, let me not be dogmatic. Let me not be... uh, uh, legalistic, Lord. And I understand that, that heart-inspired worship doesn't have to look a specific way. But God, Your Word teaches that You don't look at the outward appearance. You look at the heart. And so, Father, where we have come into Your place and we have brought You worthless and meaningless idolatry, by coming into this place and disregarding You, not really bringing our heart for worship, but just coming because it's a ritual. Or let us look at your word where you say, what is this trampling of my courts? Rather, Lord, let us come with hearts prepared. Let us come with hearts eager to seek the face of Jesus Christ, to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, that you may be glorified. God, let your power fall on this place. God, may you get our hearts right in worship, right at home, right during the week, so that we may be right on the weekend, that we may be right as we gather together. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and truth, God. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray.